0: Um, today's topic is theistic arguments, and that might sound very daunting, and like okay, we're really going to get into it. But I promise, um, we're really going to just focus on one argument, and I'm going to try to make it just as simple as possible. So, um, with that, I will pray, and then we'll we'll get into it. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this time. Again, thank you for this opportunity and this place. Thank you for a land that we live in, that though there are threats of storms and high winds and things, they seem to just pass us by, and uh, we're just reminded of your goodness and your grace to us, and uh, we thank you for all that, and we pray that you will guide us and lead us today, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So, as we've sort of been talking about in this class, uh, we're using uh, the presuppositional apologetic method. And sort of the bread and butter of the apologetic method of presuppositionalism, I'm throwing out a bunch of really big words here and I haven't really talked yet today. So, um, is the notion and the belief that God is obvious, right? That, um, as we've said in in the other classes, that um, the world that is natural man, sinful man, Um, is aware of God's existence. The natural revelation speaks to him, right? Psalms is all about that. Um, Proverbs talks a lot about that. Job, like the half of the book of Job is basically God explaining to Job, you know, can you create what I've created? Can you do what I can do? It's it's clear to mankind, I think, that um, there is a creator and that there is someone who is above us and, and authoritative over us yet we read in the New Testament that it's through our unrighteousness, that it's through our sin that we actively suppress that, right? So presuppositional apologetics works if that's the case. If it's the case that mankind is without excuse to the existence of God, to knowledge about Him, and yet we suppress it. So it's obvious to them, it's obvious to us, now that we're saved, it's like, how can they not see it, right? How can they not see death and rebirth in the world, right? As a picture and sign of Christ's death and resurrection. How can they not see that? right? Well, it's because they're suppressing the one thing that we talked about. They're suppressing Scripture. They're suppressing the uh, special revelation of God that clarifies their understanding of natural revelation. right? So, in essence, to the whole world, God is obvious, but to only to the elect or to Christians, it's clear and we understand it and we actually believe it. Right? So, that's the premise, though, and that's why presuppositional apologetics works, is because it is it is obvious to everyone. So, the Bible tells us that if it's obvious, then we can argue as though it's obvious. Okay. Um, last week, we concluded um, regarding Christ being the source and foundation of all truth and knowledge. And if you weren't there, I'll just give you the real quick explanation of that. Um, What that means is that if if we say truth and knowledge is found in Christ, and he's the source of all truth and knowledge, then as the examples I gave, for example, the color of blood, right? We say blood is red if that belief matches what God knows to be the color of of blood. Red. So another example. God understands the sky to be blue. Therefore, when we perceive it to be blue we can say we have the truth because our understanding matches in part, at least partially, God's understanding. right? Uh, the other example I gave was if someone claims to be a Christian, we can say it's true that that person's a Christian if God also views them to be a Christian, if God also understands them to be a Christian or knows them as part of his covenant community. Right? So that's sort of how how we discover truth. And then the question is, and well, great, but how do we know what God knows? We know through Scripture, right? Hey, we, we can rely on our senses because we know we've been created for this world, right? We can know who Christians are because God has given us the litmus test, which is test them by their fruits, right? What they profess, those sort of things. So this is how we come to truth, and we we, we ended on that Christ is actually the center and foundation of truth, Right? And we gain that from, and I'm just going to, the reason I'm doing this is because it, it, it uh, works exactly into our discussion today. So I'm going to read 1st, um, or actually not 1st Colossians, Colossians 1, 15 through 20, and it was kind of our theme verse last week, and we're going to just use it to pick up today. And this is regarding the supremacy of Christ, right? It says, uh, verse 15, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by Him all things were created. By the blood of his cross. So there we have Christ being presented as the fullness of God. So, as we will talk today, theistic arguments, the reason I'm using this is because this verse, among many other verses, helps us define uh, God as a triune God. So, really, what we're going to be looking at today is, is one particular argument, if you can say that. Um, which it is, a, it is a formal argument, is we're trying to prove the Trinity, right? So I finished last week with, it can't just be any other God, right? We're going to look at today why it must be the triune God of Scripture, why it can't be some other impersonal God or, you know, just uh, chemical reactions or, um, you know, a singular God who exists apart from any other relationship with anyone else and really doesn't want a relationship with His creation. These sort of things. Why must it be our definition and the Scriptures' articulation of the Trinity? Right. So that's what we're going to look at today. Um, like I said, Colossians one. There's Colossians one. I mean, beginning of Luke, beginning of Acts. It's funny. Beginning of most of the books of the New Testament are very Trinitarian, sort of in their introduction. Right. And then. Um, the interesting thing, and I think we all know this, that Trinity, the Trinity isn't like, there's not a passage that says, I mean, besides the end of Matthew, I suppose, when it gives our model of baptizing, right? But the word Trinity never really shows up in Scripture. It's something that we infer from Scripture. It seems to be pretty clear. I was thinking about this yesterday. Even even secular scholars, I think, see that there's this triune nature of God appearing in the New Testament, Right? But it's something that we have to gain from a thorough study of Scripture. And it's something that the church um, really had to come to terms with during the sort of formulation that we have in the book of Acts and things like that, right? Um, I think after Pentecost, they really understood, okay, there's really something else going on here. Um, This is is beyond what uh, anyone in the Old Testament ever experienced, right? Um, That sort of thing. So the triune nature of God is, um, I think, explicitly, but it's sort of veiled, um, revealed in the New Testament, right? It takes thorough study to find it, right? And which is why so many people can easily sort of just disregard it. It's like, no, that's just they're just being poetic, or they're just doing some other you know mechanism. But um, for our purposes today, we're going to define. (coughs) The Trinity, a little bit, which is always risky business because you're bordering on heresy anytime you try to uh, define it very clearly. Um, But what do we believe mainly about the triune nature of God? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, right? So you have the Father, who is obviously, we would say, the head of the triune God, but then at the same time, we have to admit that um, there is no um, subordinate position. And there is no higher authority position. So they're all on equal footing, but somehow in scripture it also talks about God, right, being sort of in the uh, we we understand fathers to be in that role. We'll let everybody get sort of situated. So the biggest, uh, the biggest aspect of the nature of the Trinity I think that we, we want to understand for today is that A, we're dealing with, as the, uh, um, the Church Fathers articulated, one substance and three persons, right? Now obviously we don't want to get too much into dividing it into three particular people because then there's problems there and things like that. But we are dealing, in, especially in the New Testament, you do get the sense that the Son is acting In certain ways. And then the Spirit's acting. And then the Father is talking to the Son. Like at Jesus' baptism, the Father speaks and the Son is there. So it's like there seems to be some actual division and differentiation there. Um, But needless to say, we affirm that they are united in perfect fellowship, perfect community, and perfect relationship. right? So what do we know about the Triune God? He is a relational God. right? And He is also, therefore, a personal God. And as we will get to later, we're going to use that idea of persons or personalities and relationship to really prove what we're trying to prove here today. Okay. Now, I'm going to stop sort of just rambling on here and talking and and we're going to sort of do an exercise so you guys will get to sort of interact here. And this is, uh, thankfully I got some advice from last week and I sort of took it and I molded it and I changed it and made it my own so I didn't just plagiarize someone. Um, so we're going to use an analogy to sort of get at what uh, the presuppositional method actually is. Okay. So I'm going to do this by writing some simple phrases on the board. And I think we all know these phrases. I tested this on my wife Julia last night. And unfortunately, she didn't know any of them because she's not from the United States. So, I was just like, oh gosh. So, I was, I was having to explain them and all this kind of thing, and it just didn't work that well. But eventually, she did understand it when I explained the, mm-hmm. the, um, the pro, you know these proverbial statements. Um, <clears throat> so, I'm sure you've all heard them before. So, what I'm going to do is we'll erase. Don't erase the Trinity. Oh my God. OK. What we're going to do is we're going to draw a line. So, this is going to be like sort of fill in the blank or hangman style. <laughs> okay? um, and I have to make sure I do this right, because it's, it's, it's um, kind of hard. Okay. So I'm going to write the ending of the phrase, and then you guys just shout it out when you think you know it, what the beginning is. Okay? All right. <clears throat> so the first one is, gathers no moss. A Rolling, rolling stone. stone. Ah, it's, it's working. Great.
1: <laughs>
0: I'm so happy. A Rolling Stone. Okay. Very good. All right, let's.
1: I've seen Richards. He's pretty mossy.
0: Right. Okay. One more. All right. We're gonna do two more. Okay. So. Before they hatch. Okay. Don't count your chickens. Very good. Don't count your chickens before they hatch. Last one. All right. Well, what I'm tr- what I'm wanting to do is write the first part here and not that's not how it works. is worth two in the bush. A bird in the Very good. A bird in the end. Matt says that all the time.
2: Yeah. At
0: the end. So, the point is, in this analogy, is that uh, if we could think for a second, now I'm not an English professor, so if anyone is an English teacher in here, please forgive me. I don't know the technical terms for parts of sentences and things like that, but... Let's just imagine that this is the argument section and this is the conclusion, right? Okay. Gathers no moss, if we could think about that as our experiences that, is, that are obvious to us, right? So, um, God being clearly seen in nature is obvious to us. Well, the only thing that makes gathers no moss make sense is if the proper beginning is there. A rolling stone, right? So, as a little exercise, what would happen if I switched these two? So now all of a sudden we have don't count your chickens gathers no moss. Does that sentence make any sense? No. That's unintelligible, right? A rolling stone before they hatch? (laughs) The only one that kind of makes sense is a bird in the hand gathers no moss?
1: (laughs) Right?
0: But even then, we've never heard that before, so that doesn't really make sense. A rolling stone is worth two in the bush. Don't count your chickens is worth two in the bush. So, what we see is that any explanation or any argument to the conclusion, if you will, if it doesn't match it properly, it's unintelligible. Right? We don't have an intelligent, a meaningful sentence, right? It's just nonsense, okay? I think all of you are picking up what I'm putting down here. So I'm going to erase this. So we've already taken a minute to define sort of the key attributes of the Triune God, right? Those key attributes are Personality or personhood, right? And relationship. So I'm going to talk a little bit about, or rather we can sort of parse out what we mean by those two things, right? So what 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 do we call our personality? What what do we really mean by that? Who we are. Who we are. So our identity, in some respect, right? What? So our identity and how we look, our identity, in how we sound, our likes, our dislikes, those sort of notions, right? Okay. So our personality is sort of the the term we use to identify what makes us us, right? What makes us distinct? Now, you could ask the question: Do do we as individuals, distinct persons, do we have value? Do we act as though we have value in the world?
2: Yes.
0: yes. Obviously. Absolutely. Right? We'd say people who don't act that way, we call that abnormality, right? Like something's wrong with Sociopath. them. Yeah, exactly. Something like that. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, world, the world clearly oh, sees... <laughs> yeah. The world clearly sees something wrong with murder because it's violating this notion that, wait a minute, that person has value. And I think even if we think about the secular world and the whole world uh, sinful man, we, this is obvious to us, right? I have value. I don't think there's a single person in the world unless there's something mentally wrong with them that's like, no, nah, I, don't, I don't matter, right? Now, there are people who say that other people matter in their state or in their mental condition, But even that person who says, or this race doesn't matter, they then affirm that they themselves actually matter, that they have value, they have meaning, right? So what we have here is the whole world affirming that persons and personality have value or meaning, right? They're worth something. Persons and personality are worth something. Now, I could define relationships, I think, as the interaction between persons. Is that fair? Any sort of interaction between persons, because relationships aren't just good things, right? Sometimes there can be bad relationships, (laughs) there can be, right? There can be uh, violent relationships, but there's interaction between persons. I think that's a fair way to describe relationships, do you think? So, relationships is interaction <clears throat> between two, per, two or more persons. Okay. So, if persons and personalities have value, then doesn't that mean if this is the interaction between two things that have value, relationship also has value. Right? Yeah. And we, we understand this. Our, my marriage to my wife is important. And I think there's no one on the planet who would say, no, it doesn't mean anything, unless there's thoroughgoing atheists, right, who say, nope, it's meaningless. It's just the outcome of your chemical makeup, and you guys happen to collide into each other at the right time, and blah, 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 right? There's no meaning there. But I think we live and move and breathe, and it appears obvious to us, right, what we call sort of common sense is that it does have relationship, or that it does have value. Relationships do have value. They're important. They're worth something. And that's the point. We all hold that to be true, regardless of if we're Christians or we're Muslims or whatever, right? And this is what I'm getting at. The existence of God, man is without excuse. It's obvious to us. Relationships have value. Persons have value. Okay, So, I think we might finish a little early today, but that's fine. If we take our analogy that we talked about earlier, right, and we have our precluding statement, this is gathers no moss, if you will, right We need a rolling stone to make this make any sense. So as a sort of exercise, as we did before. What are some possible explanations that the world tries to give for where these things came from? Okay, so one might be a chemical reaction. Or
2: just Dr. Pepper being shaken.
0: Exactly, fizzing all over the place. Okay, a chemical reaction, therefore, we'll put the logical um, symbols for therefore, a chemical reaction, therefore, Persons, personalities that have value, and relationships that have value. That doesn't match up, right? That's like saying a rolling stone before they hatch. It's not really making any sense, right? What's What's another one we could think of? Something you've heard other people say. Maybe aliens. Aliens. There you go. Crystals. Aliens fertilize the earth. Yes, the true, the good um, conspiracy theorist, right? Aliens created us.
2: You
0: gave us the pyramids. Yep. So aliens created us, therefore, persons and personality and relationships that have value.
2: Eh,
0: not really, right? We're struggling. Struggling to make this work.
2: We're still kind of missing the first part of the sentence. Right. Where the aliens come from? Right. Exactly. (laughs) So it's like, okay. Other aliens. Uh, Yeah. Yeah, Other aliens. Precisely. What's wrong with you? There's there's turtles
1: all the way down. Aliens all the way down. I think the world is. I think they would say that a, a higher being. I think they. I think a lot of people would say that there. There is a god, somewhere, doesn't necessarily. He isn't necessarily
0: personal. Right. But that, But there is a god that you know. I think that's. I think that's very yeah, accurate. So. That's where they would go. So probably next okay, well, let's try that then. So we've got an impersonal. Mm-hmm. God. Yeah. Lowercase God, right? Yeah. Uh, and he's he's singular, so he's just one, right. just one God. So we have an impersonal God, therefore, persons, multiple persons, and relationship. But oh, one God, beginning relationship. Okay, that doesn't see that doesn't seem to work. Oh bugger, jeez. <laughs> another, another one is
2: um, people will often say, well. It comes from ourselves we we create mm-hmm. I think therefore I am or you know because we are kind of humanist we're, we're the almost like we're the gods yeah so, yeah like, so right, right. yeah
0: so you they would say they would say this persons pull,
2: course, our
0: own and personality yeah,
2: yeah exactly. right. okay. person.
0: therefore persons right. and personality yeah. well we we would just say well that's the very definition of a narrow circular argument right, right? Mm-hmm. you're you're So persons beget persons. The same exact persons beget persons. In a sense, then your value is within yourself. And again, we all know the pitfalls of relativity. I think, right? If if I say I have value because I say I have value, then I'm free to a sense to violate other people's value because Mm -hmm. their value is contained within themselves. But that's what they say, though. That's what people will tell you. People will tell you that. Correct. So they're saying, this is very good, yes. They're saying this, right, but they're affirming that their value is, dare I say it, transcends themselves.
1: Penultimate. ultimate. We're looking for the first cause.
0: Right. 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 So they they affirm that they have value, but they want to try to say that that value is within themselves. Mm -hmm. This is precisely what I think we talked about last week in the, the presuppositional apologetics is that Man is actively denying the fact that God is the source of His meaning and truth and value and all these sort of things. So he has to come up with some other thing that's the justification for that. But he lives as though... This is the important part. We all live, and I think mankind can't help himself. He has to live as though he has value. Otherwise, we just kill ourselves, to be blunt, right? And this is, I mean... I guess I can say this, that I think um, any thoroughgoing atheist, and there's actually been instances of this, atheism, in its logical conclusion, results in suicide. Because ultimately, this life doesn't matter. Your life doesn't matter. There's no value to it. Killing yourself is simply the best course of action, because then you actually do get to find out what happens, if anything. So, that worldview is... Defeating, utterly defeating. It just, it. I think any thoroughgoing atheist. That's why I, I would. I told my dad this that. I have this uh, imagination that the people who do that, who are atheists, God at least has to like applaud them, when they get stand before him because he's like, well, at least you were consistent in your <laughs> right, worldview, right, right. right? You denied me thoroughly, you know. But you took your too. Mm-hmm. To I don't know that that does them any good, but I think that's. That's the logical sort of explanation but, when we...
2: There's a new atheistic group in England that's the uh, self-extinction group. Okay. That thinks that they're, they're ready to do what needs to be done in order to save the world. They Overpopulation
0: to be is a problem, so we're we going to off ourselves. Save, yeah.
2: So they're like radically <coughs> in proportion and not non-marish. Of course, everybody else's life is not. <laughs> right. anything. So, yeah you, can, yeah, you can sign up with this group and and the whole thing is we are going to try to convince you we should go
0: extinct the, the same Yep, which well, the like, best... Anytime anybody says that, who says, well, there's overpopulation on the planet and we really need, like, you know, active things with birth control or abortion or anything, say, well, why don't you start with yourself? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that... But that is... That's what we do. We start with ourselves. We take the speck out of our own eye before we go and address the plank. A
1: thief has no conscience.
0: Right. And his bicycle gets stolen. Correct. Do you know what I'm saying? Yep. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden he's offended. I don't know why. Right. So, So all this goes to show you that we can't help ourselves. Even natural man, sinful man, can't help himself. He has to live as though there is value and purpose and meaning to his life. Otherwise, it just ends in destruction. And that is not civilization. Civilization depends on people having value, relationships having value, groups of relationships having value, which we call communities. Therefore, communities have value. Communities together create societies which have value. And ultimately, civilization. So if you take away value from the person, you destroy civilization. And I don't, besides anarchists, I don't think there's anybody that wants to destroy, <coughs> utterly destroy civilization. I think, I think that's why um, abortion
1: is such an uh, an abhorrent practice for the Christian because the devaluing of, of a life is just something that we've bought into old. And the churches uh, are silent, basically, they've been silent for so
2: long on this issue. Mm-hmm. It's like... Um,
1: I don't we're so far down the road that uh, nihilistic thinking it's,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know, Netherlands is there, I mean they euthanize their old people and give yep. the kids and forth their old yeah, yeah, Exactly. So I mean, it's coming. Um, what you're doing as a church, right? Well, well we're teaching apologetics. It yeah, it doesn't do anything yeah. to go and carry a placard down at the abortion clinic either yell in everybody's face it's not what we did not, but um there's massive that need to happen
0: right. within the church. Yep. Which so is we're where we're shaking
1: hands with the devil, you know, we think some guy gets in
0: there as president and we're gonna be all right. saved. <laughs> yep. No, and and exactly, Byron, I think that um, based on our model here, the change occurs not down here at civilization, the change occurs here. Right? Think about it. The the church began with twelve people. Really well it, came, it began with one, Christ, right? in 12 people, and it spread from there. Jesus didn't go and kill Caesar and take the throne and, alright, everybody's Christian. Right? That's essentially what we want to happen in this country. We want... If uh, get on a tangent, we want Jesus to run for president. That's not going to happen. So it, it takes this. Persons with personality having value, us as Christians, as the body of Christ, acting... And behaving in a way that brings salt and light to the world right it's a slow burn I think that's the point here is that it's a slow change we've drifted into this slowly and it's not going to happen it's not going to fix itself overnight but it can fix itself and these are the things that we're getting at is that I think our goal and our purpose as Christians is to show people they're rebelling against God that they do affirm relationships and go ahead Keith did you want to Okay, Um, so we looked at, remember the analogy, right? So it has to have the proper beginning. So if we have persons and personality that have value, and we have relationships that are interactions between persons, and that has value, what is the precluding statement or the thing that gives these things meaning? Well, I would say that you need a transcendent, Or absolute, right? So we'll start with absolute. That is above all. Nothing bigger than Him, right? Personal and relational God. Personal and relational God, therefore, persons that have value and relationships that have value. A rolling stone gathers no moss. All of a sudden, we see that these things, just like we looked at last week, truth and knowledge come from the ultimate source of truth and knowledge. Personalities and persons and relationships gain their value because they are images of God's personality, His triune persons, nature, right? And the perfect relationship, that he has within himself. Correct. Right. So what we have here is, and this is where Frame, I think, accurately talks about in the book um, that some of you have. He talks about how this argument, and he, he has chapters, so what I've done is tried to condense it down into just one sort of thing, is that this argument... Can only get us so far into the realm of a personal relational God, and it can't particularly tell us Father, Son, and Spirit. You know, uh, Yahweh, Christ, and the Holy Spirit. Special revelation alone sort of comes in and gives us the exact details, and I think further explains the true nature of God, right? So, um, this is merely one argument. for the triune God. Right? And, is
2: this more of a natural revelation?
0: and this is an argument that I think we are getting from natural revelation, from the idea that we talked about in the beginning, that man is without excuse. So man is without excuse here because he values these things. He's without excuse, and he's presupposing that this exists, that there is a personal, relational, absolute God. He must do that. So it's our job as Christians to then come in and say, the only God that fits this criteria is in Scripture. Christ alone is the one who fits this model. Right? So that is our goal as Christians. And I think Frame, in the book, he goes into that, of like, how do we actually show that a personal, relational God is only found in Scripture, is only found in the Triune God. So, he makes the statement that, yes, the Trinity is, in fact, the only the only instance of this ever occurring anywhere.
1: So, how would you say the Jews it is a, a, a monotheistic religion? Their God is, you know, the Shema, hero Israel, our God is one. How do they account for Genesis? Let us make man in our image. Sure how do they
2: interpret that?
0: Well, I mean, I'm not a Jew. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Well, they, they, they explain away the plural names of God. Because in the Old Testament, there are names... Men heal Elohim. Yeah, and they... Jehovah They've explained it away, and they've made it very easy to explain away because it's illegal to say His name. And so what they put in its place are words that they can say. Because, I mean, this is God... Or Jesus got in this trouble yep. with this. You can't say God's name. You
0: can't say Yahweh. So
2: if you take away the, the plural forms of it and you have this pillar name... It's very easy to just sort of forget all about the fact that at one point we referred to him as in the plural
0: sense. And actually, you'll find this very good. Jews today, this is how they write God. They will not write G O D. The G dash D. That's how they write it. How about they called him Adonai? Well, they're Adonai, Jehovah, yeah, uh, they're Yahweh. Followers. I actually asked my professor at Northwest, and he said that what he believes is, which I thought was pretty funny, he believes the actual pronunciation of Yahweh was Yahoo. <laughs> <laughs> he, he said that scholars think that that's actually how it was pronounced. And I was like, nah, really? Was, yep, Yahoo. I was okay. Yeah, he's a Yahoo, all right. Um, very good. So, here we have it. Um, and I think... Just, we'll end with this. Uh, the thing that makes this important and the thing that makes this powerful is that if we say, for example, the Trinity, we've, we classically define that as Father, Son, and Spirit, right? Now, based on this model, we've said God is the source and gives definition and meaning to persons, personality, and relationships. Now, if God is one alone, sort of the pure monotheistic, non-relational being, um, Allah is a good example of of a God like that, right? Then what we have here is, in order to create relationship, we actually have to begin here Right? If, if that God is to give value to relationship, what we have to do is we have to start with the notion of human relationship and then apply that to the Father and the Son. right? So they, we say, well, God calls Himself, the Jews might say, God calls Himself Father because there's human fathers and He's just the better example of those. right? Or we understand what the role of a son is and that's, Right? God also sort of shares that nature. There isn't actually a son. There isn't actually this part of his character. Right? His spirit, that's just sort of his intentions. Right? But what we've done there is to use the big word, is we've done, committed anthropomorphism. Okay. Anthropomorphism is applying human conventions onto God. Working backwards. We're working backwards, exactly. What we want to do and what we've done here, and this is, I think, the the hallmark of Christianity, is what we call theomorphism. God's image is transmitted to us, which is the very method of creation that we all understand to be the case. God created us in His image. So now we have fathers, we have relationships, because they come from a relational God. seems like with Unitarianism where there's just a singular God with one person who can't relate to anybody until He creates, uh, that it almost deifies the creation. It deifies humans. Because then He's borrowing something from us that we have. It's like, well, then where do we get it from? Precisely. We need God in our own image. if, If you stick to that strictly Unitarian model, then you're right. God is dependent on His creation for these other attributes. right? We're not upholding that. We're upholding that we persons have value, and relationships have value because they are we are created in the image of God, right? And as my dad would like to say, thus enters a larger discussion of what that really means to be created in the image of God, right, which we could do classes on that and, and everything. But I think um, based on how we use the analogy and things like that, we have to have the proper explanation to land on this, and the point is. In our apologetic endeavors, in our actions with other people, this is something that you can ask them. Do you have value? They're going to say, of course I do. Now, wherever they try to pin that down, you can keep asking them why. If they try to say, well, it's, in, it's within myself. Well, how can yourself give yourself value? Right? How can an impersonal force give personal personalities value? How can something that's not relational Give relationships. Give value to relationships. How can there be important relationships without a source that's also relational? And I would say, has the most important of relationships. So this is the goal of presuppositional apologetics, and this is precisely why it works, is because by holding this, by holding to these things, that there is truth, that there is knowledge. That there is value to myself, that there is value to our relationships, right? That there is good and evil that's right and there is right and wrong, beauty, ugliness, these sort of things. We are presupposing that they're coming from an absolute true, personal, relational, transcendent God. We have to affirm that. Otherwise, there's no reason to hold these things. And so that's what we want to press people right. towards.
1: Yeah. As a Christian, we look, um, we look on those kinds of things and we think, we're, you know, we obviously get it right? because we, we, we believe in the Trinity and you know, we believe that there such a thing as goodness, truth, and vision. What, what strikes me as odd is how come, you know, the world will, will have that value too? Well, that's beautiful. Well, again, if you don't believe in God, why? It just doesn't make sense. It's illogical, right? Because then it all just boils down to, you know, what? Why
0: do you blame Hitler? He's mm-hmm. yeah. yep. just a uh, doctor pepper. <clears throat> over. Yep. Yeah. So this is where this is where we wanna we wanna sort of expose people's sort of inconsistency, if you will. Right. And this is something that we can do. We don't have to do this purely um, academically, sort of like we're doing today. We can do this um, more relationally, more um, sort of in a uh, family sense, right? And uh, I think with study and wisdom in God's Word and and just investigation and things like that, we can get better. We get sharper at doing this sort of thing, right? And not just being like, "Well, time out here, you're committing anthropomorphism." <laughs> Let me tell you why it's, you should you should really commit theo uh, you know theomorphism. Well, we They'll see be like, it, we see time, "Time out."
1: Jesus <laughs> confronted the rich young ruler. You know, I've kept all these from my birth. I've kept all the law. Oh, okay, but you've forgotten the very first commandment that you.
0: Yep. Your more than he your was body. saying, my justification li- is in myself. Yeah. I'm giving myself value. And that's precisely it. As Christ said to him, no, you, yourself isn't good enough. Your own value that you think you have in yourself isn't going to cut it right before God. So, all this to say, and I'm going to end on this, the point is, and this is what we can point to um, people, if we get them to the point that we go, where they go, okay, you know what, I believe in a personal relational God. Great. Well, how does that affect me? The Gospel is that the personal relational God has come to us and has drawn us into relationship with Him. Right? So, great. A personal relational God who gives value to persons and personality and relationships, but He never then interacts with us. He gave us the value, but He never interacts with us. And I would say, ultimately, this whole thing probably hinges on the very fact that God then actually comes and has a relationship with us. Mm -hmm. Otherwise he's not the pinnacle of relationship, right? He actually in personality through the incarnate Christ comes and has personal relations with humanity. Right? And that's what we have in Scripture. God himself, the incarnate God, the fullness of God in Christ, actually comes to his creation and as a person and has relationship with them. Thus, giving value, lending credence to that, we have value. So I'll just finish. He his bride. I will finish uh, just with Ephesians 1, 3 through 3-10, and then, and then we can we'll close it up. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has, been, has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. Amen. 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 So we believe the triune God is a relational God. Christ brings us into relationship with Himself and with the Father and the Spirit.